So it seems like unity, for a lot of people, a lot of places, and especially for churches, is like the missing ingredient. You know, I, I, I think that we sometimes discount how impactful unity is, how impactful it is that people be moving in the same direction, that people be having the same purpose and the same, the same goal. In, in churches, you see this very quickly, right? I mean, a church that is united around specifically Christ, not just around their politics, not just around their socioeconomic status, not just around the color of their skin, but centered on Christ, a church that is united like that well, they just thrive. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. They may not be bursting at the seams, uh, but they thrive spiritually and in the community that they have. And likewise, we see in churches that it can go very wrong very quickly. If, if there's division, if, if there's disunity, disharmony, uh, we, we know those things very quickly too. And, and, and churches like that do not thrive. And often, long-term, they don't survive much either. Oh, we see this in families. Uh, you know the difference between when your family's getting along and when they're not, uh, when they have a common goal and purpose and, 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 and the shared values, and when they don't. And that makes family reunions all the more fun or all the more difficult uh, because we very quickly know where we stand with our family. And so we see in the psalm this morning that unity, brotherly unity, and that's not just to say unity only for the men, but but brotherly, in the same sense we say, like brotherly love and affection, you know, filial love, love between brothers and, and sisters. This kind of unity, brotherly unity, is amazing and can change not only our own lives as individuals, but our life together as a community of Christ. Because brotherly unity is good, it is pleasant, it is hospitable. It is refreshing, and it is ultimately life-giving. And that's what we see in this psalm this morning. The psalmist begins with the word, Behold, look, pay attention. It tells us that something important is about to be said, and this first verse is very important for how we understand the psalm. Really, the rest of the psalm is just expanding and giving more metaphors for this first verse. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This word, uh, good here, isn't just like good, like, you know, the cereal you had for breakfast was good, or, or the t-shirt you just got at the store was good, or, or the raise you got at your job is good. It, it's not that kind of good. It actually, if you know the Bible decently, you may have heard the word good used in other contexts. When God creates in Genesis 1, it, it says again and again that the creation is good. And at the end, it says it is very good. And that word good is the same one we have here. Good. According to God's creation. According to God's design. Actually, in Genesis chapter 2, it uses that same word to say that when Adam, the, the first man representing all mankind, it says that he was alone. He didn't have any other human beings with him. And that was not good, using the same word. 
And so even just the aspect of being together, having other people around us in and of itself is good, in the same way that God's creation is good, in the same way that the works of God are good. But if you know the rest of the story, or at least the next part, you know that in Genesis chapter 3, I mean, three pages into your Bible or less, depending on your Bible, things already fall apart. And human beings choose to disobey God's word and rebel against him, and that's what we call sin. And from that point on, brotherly unity is very difficult. You turn to the next chapter. The first two brothers that we know about, Cain and Abel, you know how that goes. Cain kills Abel. That, that's how the first family was. I don't know how your family is, but you got to be doing better than that, most of us, right? We see this theme throughout Genesis, though. Cain kills Abel. Ishmael mocks Isaac. Esau wants to kill Jacob. These are all brothers. And Joseph, his 11 brothers, you know what they do to him? Or at least 10 of them. They sell him into slavery. Brotherly unity is hard to find in a world that is broken and hurting and not following God's good creation, his good design for it, his good plan, his good intention. And we see this division even in the line of David. Again, this psalm says a song of a sense of David. Either David wrote this psalm that we're reading this morning or it was, it was with him in mind or it was written for him. You know, brotherly unity wasn't very easy for David either. His, his father told him, you know, go out and, and, and look for, get your brothers. And his brothers had gone out to fight in the battles. And it says that his brothers did not answer him kindly. Well, it gets worse from there because David's kids were even more screwed up. You know, there was Absalom who killed Amnon. There was Adonijah who was trying to steal the kingdom from Solomon. Again, brotherly unity is hard to find. And, and these disputes that we see throughout the Bible just go to uh, go against the idea uh, that make clear they go against God's good creation. They are disordered and chaotic and evil. They're not neutral. They are sinful. They and, and when we reflect on them, it leads us to see that brotherly unity isn't something we can do on our own. It's not something that comes as a result of us deciding that we're just going to put up with our family. Brotherly unity comes from the work of God. In the present age in which this psalm was written, in David's age, in the age of Genesis, brotherly unity wasn't possible in the same way it is in the age of Christ, in which he came and made it possible that we might be united because he is the one that we can be united around and for and to. But it's not just good. Brotherly unity is pleasant. You know, and, and if you don't like the word pleasant, maybe just lovely and joyful. It's enjoyable. It's friendly. And we all know very quickly when, when there's unity somewhere like this, you can tell by walking in the room. You walk in the room and you go, okay, it's pleasant. People are getting along, they're having a good time. You can tell very quickly when there's division in a room. And if you haven't felt that before, you're lying to yourself, you're just not thinking very hard. Brotherly unity is pleasant in a way that division and disharmony is not. Now in this psalm, the context is clearly not just on a family like a mother and a father and their children. 
Uh, we talk about families a lot, but that's not really what this psalm is, is focused on. It, it's using that to speak more about God's people in general. You know, in Deuteronomy, it, talks, it uses the language of brothers and sisters for all of God's people. It talks about them as being children of God. And you've probably heard that phrase before. And so here, too, we see that it's less about brothers who are blood brothers, born of the same mother and having the same father, but it's brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, people who are in God's family. And so you, you know very quickly when a congregation, a church, is united around Christ and when they're not. Uh, you don't need a Baptist business meeting to know whether a church is united or not. You just have to show up once. And you know very quickly. I mean, you can step into the room and you know the difference. The, 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 when they're united, you, it feels pleasant immediately, and the pleasantness endures. It just keeps going. Whereas when they're not united, you feel nothing of, of joy or friendliness or love or, or joviality. You like that word? That's my word for the week. No, I'm just kidding. And so it's pleasant. And I think we lose this sense sometimes that, that even just being united around a shared common goal, a shared common leader, and I'm not talking about a human goal or a human leader. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, how pleasant it is, how pleasant it is to be united to Christ and to be united to Christ's people. Looking at verse 2, though, we see that it is not just good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. It is hospitable. Okay, now you may be looking at verse 2 and not seeing that, and I understand. It's talking about the oil, you know, the, the oil that is uh, on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So let's go back to the time of the psalm. You know, today, if you were to practice good hygiene, you, you would brush your teeth in the morning, probably put on deodorant. You, you may you know, bathe daily, if not more than once a day. Uh, you do some basic kinds of things, and people would say, okay, well, actually, most people don't comment when people have good hygiene. They mostly comment when people don't have good hygiene, but you get the point, right? Back then, that's not how it was. They weren't brushing their teeth every day. I know, crazy. They, they, weren't, they didn't have fluoride in the water. That's what we had back in Oklahoma. They, they weren't having you know, regular bathing habits, you know, full baths or showers every day. But there were a few things they do, and one of them is they would take olive oil and they would mix it with spices so that it had a good fragrance, and they would anoint themselves with the oil. That was just a regular practice of hygiene. And if you were to go to someone's house, they would want to treat you well and they would want you to feel comfortable and so one thing they might do for you, and it, it might be very well expected they would do this, is that when you come, no matter how far you came from, assuming you had a hard trek there or not, they would wash your feet because you had been traveling, probably walking the whole way, and they would anoint your head with oil. And this was a basic way of showing kindness to you and humility and hospitality. It was also a basic way of making sure that you were smelling good and pleasant to be around. And it wasn't because they were saying, oh, you gross person, let me wash your feet and put oil on your head. But it was just a common practice that you would do that for someone. They came to your house. They don't have the wash basin to wash their feet. They don't have the oil to anoint their head. So it's just basic human decency to do this. Now, I'm not telling you that if you have people in your home to like rub deodorant in their armpits, 
you know, and, and all that. But, but you, can, you, know, you can tell them where the restroom is. You can make sure they have water or something to drink. You can do some basic kind things. And so we see that brotherly unity is hospitable. It, it cares for people. And, and when we're united, uh, hospitality is just natural. Uh, you know, I used to tell people, you know, I grew up in the South. And, you know, we talk about Southern hospitality. But the most hospitable place I've ever been to is in Northern Ghana. When I went to Ghana and, and spent a, a few weeks there, we were in the northern part of the country, and I was in a place where, other than the one person I was traveling with, we were the only white people for miles in many of the places we were at. So we, we stuck out like sore thumbs, which is an interesting experience and one that you know, we should all have, the experience of being you know, the minority in a culture. But among all that, these were just some of the kindest nicest, most hospitable people that I've ever experienced. Uh, we went to a funeral for someone I had never met, and we were, we were sat down with the, the way they did the funerals. They had the people in the place of honor. We got to sit with them. Uh, everywhere we went, they were making sure that we had, had drinks and we, we were taken care of. I mean, it was just very hospitable. Now, most of that was, was cultural. You know, in that, in that place, they were just very caring and nurturing that way. But I had something in common with almost everyone we came across that I don't have in common with everyone, which is that they were completely committed to the cause of Christ. That their lives were completely trans. It was funny, there was so much, I remember, I actually journaled the whole time I was there, and I remember writing down at one time, I probably should have went and found it and have a little prop, you know, but, but I remember writing down that, you know, some of the differences between me and these people, and there are a lot of them. Um, most of them spoke English, but some of them didn't. All of them were bilingual or trilingual or even more than that. Uh, the, the person we were staying with, his wife, uh, spoke 14 or 15 languages because many of them were tribal dialects, and so she knew all these different tribal languages. She used to work at the hospital and be the translator for basically everybody. You know, that was a difference. Obviously, the color of our skin, the place that we grew up, the kind of country and environment we were in, the fact that I couldn't, we had, to, our plane got delayed because there was a, a big dirt storm that kept us from being able to fly in, so we had to wait till that calmed. I mean, just so many differences. And yet, I remember writing down, but I have something in common with everyone I'm coming across, which is that they know Jesus. And, and immediately, we had that unity. And immediately, there was hospitality there, just showing and caring. And so that's something that we all should strive for. It's also the case that brotherly unity doesn't just lead to hospitality, but hospitality can bring us to a place of having that brotherly family unity. So one of the ways that we can love our neighbors as ourselves, one of the ways that we can live like Christians is to make our pl homes places that are open to non-Christians, uh, to people who disagree with us, to people who don't look like us, to, to people who just live across the street and care nothing about Jesus, uh, but would love to come and eat dinner with us and, and love to be cared for. And I know not everyone can host people in their homes equally, uh, but if God has blessed you with a nice home or even a decent home, you have a, a lot more than a lot of people in this world, and you have so much opportunity to be hospitable and to care for people. I mean, even just packing sack lunches and saying, hey, meet me with a sandwich in the park after church, and we'll spend some time together. I mean, just even small things like that 
allow us to practice hospitality. And in those environments, in those, in those times in our home or, or caring for someone, we can show them where our hearts are. We can show them. The conversation doesn't always have to turn to Jesus, uh, but it could. And we can show them that the love that he has had for us and the love that we have for them because of what he has done for us. And in those environments, when someone catches a vision for that and, and believes in Jesus, they become a part of the family. Uh, they become our brothers and sisters. And they're united in the same thing we are at that point which is Jesus Christ. Now, hospitality and this brotherly unity flows from the top down. I'm not an economist, uh, nor am I the son of an economist, nor do I, I don't think I've ever met an economist. And you know what? Sometimes when I watch them on the news, I'm not sure I'd care to. Uh, but I have heard of Ronald Reagan, and I know, you know he had the whole like trickle-down economics. I have no opinion on that. What I do have an opinion on is there's almost this image in the passage it's like trickle-down trickle unity. So look in verse 2. It talks about this oil, and it says that the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, referring to the priest in the time of Moses, running down on the collar of his robes. So this oil is running all the way down. And he's saying that it's, that is how brotherly, that is what it's like when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the oil running down. You know, we need to care who our leaders are. Uh, because how they live affects how everyone else in the church lives. Uh, you know, pastors don't just lead by getting up here and teaching and giving a little speech or whatever every week or anything like that. It, it, it's by how they live. I mean, you all can think of someone right now. You can all think of someone. Big guy on TV. Maybe he, had, he, he traveled a lot around here in East Tennessee. Who great, gave sermons and was a bigger than life. And then 5, 10, 20 years later, you find out that his life was a complete sham. You know, he would get up there and say, love your neighbors. And he, like, just had a giant fence around his house and never talked to anyone. Or even worse, he said, you know, follow Jesus and, and, and conquer lust and pride and all this. And he, he names a ministry after himself and has affairs and is an adulterer and all this stuff. And we go, these hypocrites, Right? We need to make sure that it's, it's not all about the flash, but it's about the substance. It's not all about the talent, but it's about the character. And we need leaders who have good character, who are, who are displaying how to live, how to be followers of Jesus, showing hospitality, showing unity, and, and it flows all the way down so that it is more effective for the leaders in a church to show hospitality than to start a small group ministry. It's more effective for the leaders in the church to show unity among themselves than to go around squashing every disagreement. This is part of the reason that in 1 Timothy 3, two of the qualifications for elder, one is hospitable and one is not quarrelsome. Because we need to be holding our leaders to a higher standard. And, and yes, I tell you all the time, I'm a capital B Baptist, okay? I believe that the, the church governs. It's, it's every member of the church that governs. But not every member of the church leads. And we need to be very careful who we choose as leaders. We need to be very careful how our leaders are living. And brotherly unity is also refreshing. Now look at verse 3, just the beginning here. He uses another simile. It is like the dew of Hermon, 
which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, Hermon was a mountain uh, north of Jerusalem, like 100 miles north of Jerusalem. And it was known for having an abundance of dew, which was really important if you were living in, in Palestine at this time or Israel. is because, especially in the dry season, if you didn't have dew every morning, your land would be completely parched and dry. You couldn't have anything growing you, you couldn't have anything to sustain yourself. You might have to deal with, with uh, dust storms. But because of this dew, there could be life. There could be green things growing, plants to, for shade and for food, and, and all sorts of those things. Now, the image we have here is that the abundance of dew that is Hermon, is on Hermon, is flowing all the way 100 miles south of itself, to Mount Zion, to the mountains of Zion, where the temple of God rested, where people went and worshiped together so that that place is refreshed, so that that place is cared for. It is not parched, but it is nourished. Now, why is this imagery important? You know, at a time in our lives, in our nation's life, where it seems that we couldn't get more divided and then the next day we do, you know, at a time when, when people are divided over politics, they're divided over their beliefs about science, they're divided about, you know, just about everything you could be divided about. At a time when it doesn't matter who is in office or what party is in office, but half the people will say, that's not my president, or he didn't really win the election. At that time, do you know how refreshing it is to walk into a room where everyone says, that's my Savior, and Jesus is my Lord, and there is no other? At a time when we feel so broken and divided, where we can't even speak to our family, where we feel like we have to move three states over because we don't like the politics where we live, in a time like that, is it not refreshing to be among a group of people who believe Roughly the same thing. We may have disagreements, but we all agree with this, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that our sins have been forgiven by him, that there is nothing that we have to do to come to him except fall on our knees, that there is nothing and there is no one greater than him. Is that not refreshing to us? And so finally we see in this passage that brotherly unity is life-giving. Look at the end of verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's in the worshiping community that is focused on Jesus that believes he is God, that believes that God the Father, by the power of the Spirit, raised him from the dead. It is in the midst of that community that God gives his blessing. And that blessing is not wealth. That blessing isn't health or happiness either. It's not longer vacations, more adventurous destinations. It's not it's not those things. It's, it's not a nice house or a brand new car. It's none of those things. The blessings are not material. The blessings are not substantial like that. The blessing is simply life forevermore. 
And that's something we simply do not value. We simply take for granted. I don't know, I don't know everyone's worldview that I come across, but you know, there are many people I know that could care less about any church, any organized religion, any religious leader. They think Jesus is basically like Muhammad or, or like Buddha or like Confucius. He's just a guy who had some followers. Uh, they may not even believe Jesus is real. They watched a YouTube video once. They're convinced that he never existed. It, it doesn't matter what their opinion is on Christianity, the truth of it, the truth of God, the truth of Jesus. But you notice when someone they know dies, all of a sudden, they, they sound like they believe in an afterlife. They say, you know, he's, he's in a better place. You know, he's with grandma now, and they're getting to spend time together again. He's not hurting anymore. You know, it doesn't matter what your beliefs are. At some point, we all face the reality that death is coming for us all, and we either face it or we don't. And I know a few people who are committed um, naturalists. They believe that there's only the natural world. You know, souls don't exist. God doesn't exist. You know, they're atheists, and they believe that. And, and some of them would admit, you know, I don't think anything ha When we die, you know, can you imagine what it was like before you were born? Well, that's kind of like what it's like when we die. We just nothing. We just cease to exist. We become food for plants in the ground. The blessing that God gives those who are dwelling in the unity of Christ is life forevermore. And, and it's not just unending life. You know, it's not just that you get to go be in a paradise where you float around with no body and you, you zoom around the clouds and you get to go play golf all day or, or, or fish all day or, or anything like that or, or, or watch college basketball all day. No, it's in the Bible this phrase is used, actually in the New Testament, it uses the phrase eternal life. And you probably all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And when the Bible defines eternal life, it's not just simply talking about an afterlife. As if like the hope that we have is that, yeah, we don't die, uh, we just get to live forever. Isn't that great? I mean, what a naive belief to have if that's all you believed. But the Bible speaks about this. Eternal life is a life with Jesus that never ends. It doesn't start when you die. It starts when you believe. It starts in that moment where you say, I trust Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. Jesus is my all in all. And so I, I believe. And I, and I have unity with God. I'm united to Christ such that I don't just have some religion, I have a real meaningful relationship with the creator of the universe, the redeemer of my soul, the one who came and lived and died on a cross for my sin and who was raised from the dead. And that may just sound like a good story, but it's also a good story that has the virtue of being true. And so in Jesus, we are given life. But we're not just given life in the sense of living. We're given life in the sense of abundant, meaningful, purposeful, identity-giving, community-granting life. Life with Jesus that never ends. A family of brothers and sisters in Christ who will worship and glorify God together forever. Such that, no, death is not the end. But the most important part isn't that death loses. It's that Jesus wins that we get to dwell with him forever. You know, so many people make Christianity to be out, 
here's a transaction. If you believe in Jesus, you get heaven where you get to have loads of fun. But that's not the story. The story has always been God is seeking to dwell with his people. And we don't want that all the time. And we rebel against that. And we seek to dwell with anything else and to worship anyone else and to love anything else. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. They should not go on without God, but they should have eternal life. And that life-giving message, that good news about Jesus is what makes us united because we are united in him. It is what makes us a family because we are brothers and sisters not based on the color of our skin or the nation that we come from or who our biological parents are or our adopted parents on this earth. What makes us brothers and sisters is simply Jesus Christ, that he has brought us into his family. And in that family, there is no room for sons who kill each other or who mock each other or who want to harm each other. There is only room for brothers and sisters who want to be completely sold out for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.